I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And And we're a Tap on the Wrist podcast. Every week, we bring you a new history story with an alcohol twist. The stories you didn't learn from a textbook. In season one, we focused on alcohol-fueled crimes throughout history. And in season two, we told you all the secrets about Al Capone and the Chicago Beer Wars. For season three, we're introducing you to the women that Bill got burned by and ultimately changed the alcohol industry. Make sure you add us on social media at a tap on the wrist. We are so glad you found us. Grab a drink and come along for the ride. Hi guys, I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And welcome to another episode of a Tap on the Wrist podcast. Episode 74. 74! We're almost 75 episodes e- old. I almost said years old, but <laughs> 75 episodes old. I thought you were going to say 75 episodes young. Oh, yes. We have no. so much life ahead of us. <laughs> yeah, 75, that's great. 74, it feels like, you know, the youngest of the... It's the oldest young you can be. Once you're 75, you're just old. <laughs> Sorry to any 75-year-olds listening to the podcast. I don't, I don't think we have many 75-year-olds listening. You never know. Okay. Sorry, grandparents out there. <laughs> so what's new with you this week? Well, why did that sound so fake? I was genuinely asking, <laughs> but when I listened to myself, it sounded like I was being fake. So what's new this week, Laura? <laughs> <laughs> well, Vanessa, um, no, I super exciting news actually, and and people who maybe don't live in New York City won't understand, but I'm hitting a milestone in in New York City where I'm going to live alone. Oh my gosh! Which I didn't know that, but our yeah. listeners probably don't. Right, um, and and that is like a big kind of milestone for New York City. I think a lot of people mm-hmm. move here, and it is so expensive, and so you tend to like live with roommates much longer than you would in most parts of the country. Yeah, for like, sure. I don't think people in like the Midwest are typically like almost thirty four living with roommates. Right, but it's very normal here in New York. Yeah, exactly. Um, I do live by myself, and I don't, I don't know that I could ever go back to having a roommate. Right. Like, so I think, I don't, I don't know. You, I know Laura has been, like, going back and forth on if she'll eventually get another roommate, but I feel like you're gonna love it. I know, I just, my apartment, and, you know, I'm not trying to stop, my apartment is so big. Yeah. Especially for New York City. Right. And... I have lived in that apartment for almost a decade. I've lived there with three roommates. I've lived there with two roommates. Like, and so now living in the same space by myself, it I feel like I'm going to feel like I have so much space. Yeah. It's a three-bedroom apartment. It is a three-bedroom apartment. But so. for a very good price in New York City. Yes. Um, which is why I'm staying by myself and, and doing it. Um but so, with that being said, I've had to make some changes and buy some new things, and something that I bought this week that I'm really excited about is a new bar cart. Yes. And You've I, been talking about getting <laughs> no. a new bar cart for, like, months. I know, because I had this little tiny one, and that was like, jam-packed. Like, <laughs> jam-packed. 
It was like there was there were bottles like on the floor next to it because there was just no more room. There, you're right. I I mean, there were, and it wasn't just like one or two bottles. It was like twenty yeah. bottles on yeah. the floor around it. So I finally broke down. I bought a new bar cart and. It, it's beautiful and it matches the rest of my furniture and I put it together and there's so much room on it. I could put like my bar books on there, all my bar my bar glasses, all the bottles Wild. fit on the shelf. <laughs> so uh, I'm just pretty excited about that. Yeah, you're gonna have to post a picture of it. I will. So that our listeners can see its beauty. Well, I'm, I might not, maybe not this week because okay. my apartment is kind of a mess as my roommate is like packing and trying to, you know, we're just organizing yeah. and moving stuff around. But before the end of the season. Yeah. We'll, I will post a picture yeah. of it. But so that's been what I'm doing this week is just trying to figure out how to adjust to like, not life on my, I'm going to be fine living alone, but like replacing things. Mm-hmm. And like, I've always had roommates for the, the 10 years I lived in New York. So like now I have to, own everything in my apartment so yeah. I have to like replace things that my roommate is taking or like, small things you probably haven't even noticed that right. you need you right. know yeah and like you're gonna have two extra bedrooms that you need to figure out what to do with <laughs> it sounds so ridiculous <laughs> you'll have like a guest room and then a, a, like an office library is what you're hoping for yeah yeah I'm gonna make an office library and then a guest room, and one of them is going to have my shoes in it. And I don't know which one. <laughs> you have an entire bedroom for your shoes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because in addition to to bar carts that are overloading, I have shoe shelves that are way too full as well. <laughs> uh, and another thing, and this is totally random, another thing I'm most looking forward to is I have a cat, and she is lovely. Uh... But her litter box... She's lovely. <laughs> well, because the next thing is her litter box has lived in my bedroom oh, for the last 10 years so that no one yeah. had to deal with it. And I'm so excited to kick her out. Like, yes. her litter box is going next door in the office and I can't wait. <laughs> That's a big one. Yeah. This morning I was cleaning it out. I was like, two more clean outs. Two more clean outs <laughs> in the bedroom. So, there's just some things I'm really excited about, like, yeah. being able to, like, move stuff out of my bedroom, because my bedroom feels really cramped, because that's just life when you're sharing a space, so yeah. I'm excited about all of these new changes. Amazing. I what? can't wait, I can't wait to see how you put your apartment together, now that it's, like, just you, and you can, like, you know, space everything out, because you have all this extra space, and it, you know... Right. Well, and I mean, for those of you that know us, Vanessa and I lived together yeah. in this apartment for many years. Yes. So Vanessa's very aware of the apartment. Like, uh-huh. her bedroom will become my office library. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it'll, it'll be great. Yeah. What's going on with you? Nothing. <laughs> I very much just tried to think of something quickly. Um... But nothing comes to mind. Uh, I'm still in my same apartment. I'm still in my <laughs> same job. Just, you know, living life. Did you go to any new restaurants or bars this week now that we're adventuring out into the world? I went to Sugar Freak yesterday, which is a restaurant in Astoria. Um, and I drank a fro. I, 
my friend and I were sitting outside, um, and it was really hot yesterday. It was like 90 degrees, so we got frozen hurricanes. I didn't take a picture, though, but it was delicious. Because Sugar Free is like a New Orleans-style Yes, it's a New Orleans-style restaurant in in Astoria. Uh, And I hadn't been there. I I was saying yesterday I hadn't been or ordered from there since before the pandemic. So it was nice to be able to visit like a spot that I hadn't seen in so long. Nice. Yeah. And a hurricane. I mean, sometimes you just need like a fruity, slushy drink hurricanes are those drinks that are like very sneaky because they're sweet and they taste like juice but they actually have a ton of alcohol in them so like i had one like big glass and i (laughs) there were like three times where i like couldn't remember words like we were talking what are we talking the stimulus check at one point i was trying to say and i was like i can't what incentive i like couldn't remember (laughs) what the word was and i was like is it since i haven't been drinking much during the pandemic is like this one hurricane getting to me this bad yeah um we all have to build our tolerance up yeah i said that yesterday (laughs) i was like i have to build my tolerance back up because i would have you know like when i'm sitting in my apartment by myself like maybe i'll have a glass of wine but i'm not gonna have like four glasses of wine usually um or like make myself cocktails because i'm lazy so uh i definitely need to build my tolerance back up This week, we're not talking about hurricanes. No. We did that that season one, though. We did. We did. This week, we have some pretty interesting stories that are based in history. Mm -hmm. And about groups of women. Groups of women. And this is, again, this was an episode we had to record not in person. So if the audio is. A little bit not great because we had to record virtually again because of, I don't even remember, some exposure, quarantine. No, I think this was actually Mother's Day weekend. I think we had to record this. So I stayed at my parents. But we're getting close to the end of like, we've been recording in person the last few weeks. So our audio will get significantly better as the season gets closer to the end. Yeah. Just bear with these last few episodes we've recorded virtually. Um, And we hope you enjoy this week. Yeah, enjoy. Okay. So today we are going to be taking a trip back in time, as usual, (laughs) and out to the Western frontier to a period of time known as the Wild West. I love the Wild West. I know. Well, sure. I'm sure there were plenty of issues with it. (laughs) But when I think of the Wild West, like, one of the first things that pops into my mind is, like, cowboys drinking a beer at a saloon. Like, those saloon doors. You know what I'm talking about? Like, the swinging saloon doors. Yes. And also, I kind of think of, like, Maybe not like the first conscious thought, but kind of like looser morals. Like it was called the Wild West for a reason. Like it was just like there was more going on out there. Like not it that. It was like no rules. Yeah, yeah. Do what you want. Exactly. Um, so for context, if you don't really know much about the Wild West, it is also known as the American Frontier or the Old West. And it's a pretty big chunk of time. Um, what I saw labeled the Wild West as 1607 through, like, the start of the 1920s. So 
pretty substantial amount of time, but we're obviously not talking about the modern day West now. So pretty wild out there. (laughs) (laughs) The East coast, uh, where, where we are, uh, during the height of the best coast, (laughs) during the height of the old West, things were a little bit more buttoned up. Um, Their behavior and morals were more aligned to like a Victorian style. Not to say that wild things didn't happen on the East coast, but it just wasn't as open as it was in the West where it was kind of like, no rules are the best rules. (laughs) So an article I read noted that proper ladies in the West deemed things as like sex work a necessary evil, whereas people on the East Coast like completely looked down on it and thought it was completely distasteful. People in the West kind of accepted it. And it also was more acceptable for women to be in bars. You know, we talked about in the Snug episode that even in America, women didn't really go to bars. But things like that were more acceptable on the on the West Coast. So, like I said, a big part of the Wild West, it life in the wild west was sex work and brothels so sex workers were estimated by some historians to have made up about 25 percent of the population often outnumbering quote-unquote respectable women uh aka the wives and daughters of you know the cowboys and ranchers and whoever the hell was out there uh 25 to 1 like there were like sex workers would outnumber respectable women 25 to 1 I mean, I guess lots of people were on the move. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, how many settled families were out there? So Exactly, exactly. Why? It was a lot of, like, young men that were striking out on their own, you know. There weren't tons of families. So women in sex work first seemed to start hiding behind other jobs. So they would act as laundresses or seamstresses or run a brothel a brothel or run a boarding house and also work as a sex worker. But eventually it became more accepted for them to either work out of saloons or for them to open up their own establishments. So individual jurisdictions in the old West would determine whether brothels were legal or illegal. And though generally most places considered them illegal, sex work and brothels were just a widely accepted practice, especially in the West most lawmen ignored their ex- existence and probably went there themselves. Uh, I was going to say, they didn't ignore it. <laughs> they ignored their illegality. <laughs> because cities in the West especially profited off brothels in a couple of ways. So in some areas, madams needed licenses to run their brothels and the money from those licensings or licenses would go to the city. Also, a lot of brothels had to pay fines, sometimes about $8 a month to local governments in order to stay in business. Uh, The women themselves would earn anywhere from $1 to $50 per sex act. Uh, The $50 obviously being like the more high class courtesans, as as they say. But what did, did you do the math on what the equivalent of that is today? No, I didn't. Come on. But, but you like can 50, you can calculate it, it on your favorite on your favorite website. 
<laughs> it is my favorite website. <laughs> I I just feel oh, this only goes back to 1913, so that's what I'm gonna do. I mean, still eight, technically within the Wild West period. Eight dollars in 1913 would be two. Oh wait, eight dollars is what they paid, right? Uh, was what what? Tax. Yeah, like their fines or whatever. So that would be two hundred and fourteen dollars. And which I mean that's not so bad, but so fifty dollars no. per act today. For a that's high like, class. That's like thirteen hundred dollars. I mean, that's great. a good night living. Like, yeah. $1, I mean, I work way more hours for thirteen hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Um the average would be more like $5 for like a higher class um, person, but it's $50 was those like really, really expensive high class ladies. Uh, and I'm sure that there were tons of other bribes involved, obviously, you know, among the authorities and governments and all of that. But I'm not really here to talk about brothels today. Uh, I oh, wanted to mention it because hard. it's it's pretty closely linked to... <laughs> to what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to be talking about another kind of woman or another kind of woman of quote unquote ill repute uh, that wasn't necessarily linked to sex work, but could be. So first I'm going to start off with a question for you because you always start off with questions for me. (laughs) So do you know those like touristy pictures? We've done, we've done one together. I was going to say yes. (laughs) (laughs) Where so for our listeners where you like dress up in like old timey clothes and there's like a set and you take a picture and it's like you're in the, in the old times. But have you seen the ones that are like the wild west? Because the one that we did was like medieval. Yes. And can you picture one in your mind and like the types of clothes they always make women wear? It's always like a corset and like a ruffly skirt kind of like hiked up a little bit. Thigh high. Like, yeah. 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 Yep. So that look is based on a group of women from the wild west that were known as saloon girls or dance hall girls. And like I said, while they were sometimes also sex workers or linked to sex work, that was not always the case and often not the case. So that's just like a common misconception. But a lot of these saloon girls, what they actually made their money off of was drink sales. Like they worked for the saloon, the saloon owner hired them and they made their money off a like agreed upon percentage from the drink sales and also like a small weekly salary. Kind of like, you know, I guess kind of like waiters now where they have like a small salary, but like a lot of their money is off tips. Well, I was going to say it reminds me of like and I'm not that I've been to a nightclub like this in a long time, but like shooter girls, <laughs> like who would yeah. come around with like the shots. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That would probably be like a modern day equivalent. So drinks at saloons at the time usually cost between 10 cents and 75 cents, which can you imagine? <laughs> so cheap. But then I back then it was more. Yeah, back then it was more, but like to me, I'm like, 10 cents for a drink, damn. Um, Whiskey sold at the time was usually marked up 30 to 60% over the wholesale price. So it was actually kind of expensive 
even though to us it sounds like it's super cheap. And that meant that men were paying quite a bit to imbibe. And saloon girls would help that along a bit. According to an article I read, saloon girls could make about $10 a week, which they said was about $200. But what was what did your calculator say for $8? Was yeah. Two? But this is, is probably that, before is, 1913. But that was about right. $8 was like 214 Yeah. And the way that they would do that was by convincing men that they just need to drink drink some more. Um, so many of these these women, kind of like sex workers, were either widows or young girls who like didn't want to work on the family farm or who didn't want to get married right away. Uh, they were just basically women who weren't financially supported by men because as we've talked about, a lot of options weren't available to women. It was like kind of like sex work in the West. There was this option to be a saloon girl. Um, I, I don't even, I can't even think of anything else. Governess. Yeah, you could be governess. I just always think about the story we told in season one of the the male woman. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, there weren't a ton of options. I mean, seamstress. Yeah. Laundress, I guess I mentioned owning a boarding house, but there weren't a ton of options. So this was, this was what, what some women would do. I think, and it's important to note that in the wild west, as we mentioned, it was a lot of like young men striking out on their own. There weren't a ton of families. So a lot of men were starved for female companionship. Men outnumbered women at the least three to one. In other places like California in 1850, 90% of the population was male. So this was sometimes the only source of female like companionship and interaction that men were getting were these saloon girls. And they basically, like I've said a couple times now, were there to entice men to stay and drink and to spend more of their money. The women would sing, they would talk with the men, they would dance with them. And they would convince them to buy drinks for them, like the men to buy drinks for the saloon girls. And they would pay full price, like full price for a whiskey, for a shot of whiskey. But because they worked for the saloon, they were never actually paying for whiskey. Like they, what they would actually give the girls was like tea or water with like food coloring in it, basically. Because obviously they, these women were employees. They didn't want them to end up drunk and sloppy. So they were getting men to pay like full price for whiskey. And they were really just drinking water. Um, which is hilarious and genius. (laughs) Yes. So these women actually, again, because men really didn't have much female interaction, these women were actually pretty well respected among men. Not so much among like the, you know, the women and the wives, but men actually genuinely respected them and considered them to be good women. Uh, It was a a requirement by many saloon owners that the men treat these women with respect and mistreatment of them could result in anything from being banned from the saloon, being ostracized from the entire community, or even being killed. So, like, the saloon owners really did want to take care of these ladies. They weren't, like, super at risk, though. I mean, you know, they still kind of were. But 
also because of their low quote unquote low status in society, um, men felt really comfortable around them and were able to like talk to them more and get a little bit more deep with them than they would with, you know, their wives or daughters or sisters. So a lot of times men develops really close relationships with them. They'd often give their like favorite saloon girls really lavish gifts. And of course, some women wanted to take advantage of this and eventually find a husband through being a saloon girl. Uh, but in order to prevent that, a lot of saloon owners would limit the amount of time that a male patron could spend with a particular saloon girl to prevent that bond from being for- formed so that their employees wouldn't leave. As I say, they don't want the girls to go anywhere. Yeah, exactly. They're making they're making them more money. But of course, even though they were respected and men did value them, they were still at risk because, you know, men and drunkenness. My so, teacher right now says <laughs> toxic masculinity ruins the party again. <laughs> Shout out to my favorite murder. It just fits so perfectly right there. <laughs> it it did. Um but a lot of men would become very possessive over saloon girls because, like I've said five times now, they were sometimes the only interaction they had. So they would often demand things that the saloon girls weren't comfortable with because, like I said, though some did double in sex work, a lot of them were not sex workers. So they didn't want to engage in sex acts with these men. or And, that you know, that's just not how they made their money. So that would sometimes result in violent deaths or saloon girls being beaten by men. In fact, more than a hundred cases of this happening were documented. And I'm sure that there were probably many more that were left undocumented. As a result of that, saloon girls carried jeweled daggers or small pistols with them, usually hidden in their boots or between their bosom. Just pull out a jeweled dagger. <laughs> How classy is that? How classy. I love it. Um, one article I read told the story of a saloon girl who turned a man down and then was savagely beaten. But apparently when a cowboy approached her, she said, I don't mind the black guy, but he called me a whore. Like she was more upset about being called a whore than being beaten. Wow. Yeah. Another downside to being a saloon girl was that once women aged out of the saloon girl trade, because of course, you know, men wanted young, pretty girls to talk to, not, not old people like in their forties. <laughs> How dare you? How dare? I think I actually read most were like between the ages of like 18 and 30 somewhere. So once they aged out of it, they often had nowhere to turn because, you know, they were single, they didn't have another source of income. And so, Unfortunately, a lot of them would either die by suicide, overdose, or sickness that they were unable to treat. Uh, And then some would turn to sex work after being a saloon girl once they've aged out of it. Now, in order to catch the attention of men, these saloon girls' fashion choices were a bit different than the standard woman during this time period. So again, we're going to think of those like touristy photos we took. They're actually pretty (laughs) accurate. Um, women that worked as saloon girls wore visible, colorful petticoats and skirts that had shorter hemlines that stopped at the knee or the shin. Sometimes they would have a train. The dresses were often decorated with sequins and fringe and would show off their arms and shoulders. So super scandalous. Ooh la la. 
Ooh la la. Uh, they would also have low cut bodices so that, you know, their boobies could show. <laughs> and they would have visible garters and stockings. Saloon girls and sex workers as well were often called painted ladies because they ha- would wear heavy eye makeup, which was not typical of the time, and would even sometimes color their hair. So they were basically just cool looking, I feel like. They weren't wearing boring, boring buttoned up collars. <laughs> no, nothing boring over there in the wild west. In the wild, wild west. So in about 1849, aside from saloons, dance halls began to become popular in the west. And as in saloons, women were brought in and paid to dance with the men who would attend. Dance halls would open around 8 p.m., And these dance hall girls made money from each ticket sold, uh, which would usually be between 75 cents and a dollar. You want to see how much that was for a ticket? Well, I mean, it's... Did you look up a dollar already? No, but I have the calculator still open. Um, It's like $26 a ticket. All right. I mean, I don't know that I would pay $26 to go dancing... I guess I would. It's New York. I mean, I don't like to dance, so I wouldn't. But <laughs> Yeah, I don't know that I'd pay $26 to enter a dance hall. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they made a percentage off that ticket and then also a percentage of each drink like the saloon girls did, specifically off the drinks that they would have get sold after they danced. So popular women at these dance halls could expect to have as many as 50 dances per night, which means that they're getting 50 dudes to buy drinks, which is a pretty good amount of money. Each turn could last about 15 minutes. And every time they would basically be like, sir, would you like to purchase me a beverage? That again, wouldn't really be an actual beverage, but they'd be paying for one. And it was so profitable that it was even rarer for a girl that worked at a dance hall to be also a sex worker, like at a saloon. Um, In fact, a lot of sex workers left the sex trade industry to become a dance hall worker because they, they made such a bank. Because I've been kind of mentioning sex workers a lot during this, I do want to talk a little bit about their lifestyle and and systems. Um, They did kind of have a pecking order So while there were some girls that doubled as saloon girls or dance hall girls or just worked out of saloons, they were kind of looked down upon by the girls that worked at actual upscale parlor houses. And these parlor houses could be super fancy. Um, They could look like beautiful mansions. I mean, you know, think of like the Everly sisters in Chicago, like they could be super fancy nice locations. And in the West, they would advertise their true intentions by hanging red lanterns outside or by using red bold curtains on the lower floor. And larger parlor houses even included their own gaming rooms and dance halls to make additional money. So basically, the women that worked there would perform as musicians, dancers, singers, jugglers in these like separate dance hall gaming rooms when they weren't, you know, engaged in sexual acts with men and 
they would usually be that these lower levels of the parlor houses acted as a, like a respectable business, quote unquote, and then all the sex work would actually happen upstairs. Um, in addition to those parlor houses and the girls that worked out of saloons, there were also cribs, uh, which usually had sex workers either working independently or through a mad- madam who would keep a string of these cribs for older sex workers um, who had aged out of working in the parlor houses and brothels. So they were like too old for that, but they would still be used by them. And these were usually found in segregated districts uh, and they would have like a front bedroom and then a kitchen in the back. And then there were other types of sex workers like street walkers who were kind of like the lowest level in this pecking order where they would just walk the streets looking for a John. And then there were also sex workers that serviced the military specifically. There was basically a lot of different types of sex work that, that you could go into. And then there was also these trades of saloon girl and dance hall girl. Um, And one of the articles I mentioned, I read mentioned that some higher level courtesans, like those $50 ladies uh, would eventually sometimes marry. They would end up marrying pretty well and become part of quote unquote respectable society. Um, Because in the West, it was very rude and unlikely that someone would ask about a person's background. So they could just like easily integrate without ever having to mention that they had been in sex work. Uh, A lot of women also would go on, if they made enough money, go on to open their own brothels or their own saloons. But as I mentioned with saloon girls, a lot of women who aged out of sex work, unfortunately, would turn to alcohol, drugs, and suicide, which, of course, is really horrible. But in the later part of the 19th century and at the turn of the century, our friends, the temperance movement, not our friends, not our friends. People like that would come about, start pushing for more reform. They would push for prohibition. Religious leaders changed kind of society's views about what was acceptable. And so brothels became more and more illegal and not as much a part of just everyday society. And then girls like saloon girls started to become less common because, you know, drinking was bad and women shouldn't be in, in bars bullshit it all um, makes me roll my eyes yeah so eventually I, yeah i was just saying people can't see me at home but <laughs> I, i've rolled my eyes many times <laughs> um but you know eventually kind of this all this work kind of faded into the background of history of course sex work does still exist um it's just not as big a part of society again, everyday society like it was back in the Wild West. Um, And now women can go to bars whenever the hell they want. They don't have to be employees of the bar. They could be if they want, but they don't have to be. Back then, it was like you that was the only way you were an employee. Bullshit. I know. Uh, So yay to progress. (laughs) We still have more to to make, but, but yay to what we've done so far. So my sources for this were three articles. One was called Painted Ladies of the Old West from Legends of America. And that article actually is really detailed and has a lot of great information if you are interested in reading more about women back in the Wild West. Then I also used Saloon Girls, The the Soiled Doves of the Old West from CuriousHistorian.com. And lastly, What Life Was Really Like as Wild West 
What Life Was Really Like as a Wild West Saloon Girl by Melissa Brinks from Ranker.com. Those are the saloon saloon ladies. I've always... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, if you go take one of those touristy pictures, now you know what you're dressed as. Yeah. Saloon girl. I was going to say, I wish there was a way... I every time someone says like what superpower would you have you know like that question that gets asked as icebreakers sometimes yeah my superpower would be to time travel wherever I wanted because I just want to like plop down in the middle of the wild west and see it in action and then be able to leave when but then be able when to you leave. got pissed yeah yeah <laughs> But like I totally, totally, so many pieces of history that I just want to live. I just want a glimpse. In. I just want a glimpse yeah. of it. I don't want to be there permanently because I wouldn't make it. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I totally agree. That would be an amazing superpower. Yeah. Okay, so it's so interesting that you talked about a group of women today because. I also am talking about a group of women in history. Yay, unintentional themes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And today I am once again walking into French history, where I'm bound to butcher pronunciation. Oh, no. (laughs) Sorry, friends. Please forgive me. Um, But when I heard this story, I was just like, this is the definition of badass. Uh, and these women that I'm going to tell you about today are very, very cool. So the story I'm sharing today is the story of the Viva. Hold on. I've practiced oh, no. this so many times and I have to say it like a hundred times. So, um, hold on. The Vivandier. Yeah. Yeah. Vivandier. Is how you Vivandier. say it. Yeah. I like it. So this is a term that not many people are familiar with because they were often not written down in history books, but at its basic definition, a vivandier was a woman who served with a troop of soldiers during wartime. And their origins started, they were kind of tasked with providing home comforts to the men who were fighting in the field or at a camp base. But they quickly became like a fundamental part of the army regime. And as I mentioned, everyday people are not often familiar with the terms of Vendier. They're also often overlooked in part of women's history as well as military history because they were not considered actual soldiers. So their stories weren't told and shared and passed on. Bullshit. Um, Such bullshit. (laughs) bullshit um and this idea of women kind of just going around with soldiers wouldn't really fly today um one because women now actively serve in most militaries so they are actual soldiers um yay equal rights (laughs) (laughs) but um also, I there is a part of me that finds it interesting that women or children might travel around with troops, which, I mean, it seems kind of dangerous and ineffective. Like on have, the war front. Yeah, to have untrained civilians. However, 
in history prior to the position of Vivandier being created, that is what happened. Like women and children would travel with their husbands and families with the troops. Um, History reports show that prior to the 18th century, armies often reported having more women and children than soldiers in their camps. Because it's like a family. I guess it makes sense because, yeah, if you had one soldier with one wife and three kids, then yeah, that makes sense that they would outnumber. But times have changed, probably for the better. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I just think with the way weapons and technology are today, it'd be far too dangerous. So dangerous, yeah. And it often seems like that would be an easy way to, like, if you captured all the women and children and held them hostage, then your enemy would back down. <laughs> so it just, yeah. it, it seems like maybe today's practices are a little bit better than those prior to the 18th century, but we're going to talk about uh, the Vendiers and their traditions and how they came to be um, a part of history. So their tradition is believed to have begun in the French army regiments during the early 18th century. And basically it was the same idea. Women um, who were married to soldiers and didn't want to stay behind as their men left, would sign up to assist certain regiments during the war as, like, Mm -hmm. a job, not just to, you know, come along with the kids. They would be hired to join regimes, just not as as soldiers. Mm -hmm. And they served multiple functions that helped to keep the troops happy while they were fighting. So a few, there are a few sources that kind of label uh, these women or allude to that they were sex workers or kind of groupies or, you know, soldier, like camp followers. That's simply not true. Uh, Vivandiers had a position with each regime and they did have a job to do. Uh, Their biggest job and role during the French Revolution was to be the suppliers of the things that soldiers might want or need while fighting on the front line. So they were given the rights to sell things such as wine, food, tobacco, writing Mm -hmm. paper, wig powder, or any type of amenities that the troops needed. Um, I was going to say booze and cigarettes were probably reasons. high up there. Yeah, and there, it was a good business practice because obviously the troops were provided rations, like basic army rations. But, you know, sometimes you want more than that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so being able to get these items above their basic rations were very important and by having someone who could provide them to troops on the front line kept soldiers from straying from camp um, in search of the extras or potentially, you know, them leaving and then falling in love and deserting the army altogether. So it was quite important, uh, these women to kind of hold all of these things and they like carried them on their person uh, and would sell them to soldiers 
as needed. But they have other jobs as well. Uh, I emailed you some pictures. Okay. So if you could look at the one picture, it's a picture of three women. It's in black and white. They have hats on. It should be the first picture in the email, I believe. Yep. They have like little bags. Wait, hold on. Yes. We're going to play my favorite game right now. Vanessa explains the picture to our listeners. However, hold on. Before you explain it, I'm also going to plug our social media. Because if you want (laughs) to look at the picture yourself uh, while Vanessa explains it, uh, it will be on our Instagram. So check that out on at a tap on the wrist on Instagram. Yes. If my if my explanation is not vivid enough. Yeah. Please, okay. please feel free to look. Okay. What What are we seeing? Okay, so there's three women, right? There were, I think, it kind of looks like they're wearing pants, but then also a skirt over it. And then it kind of has like an apron. And then there's a jacket with a shirt under it and a little like bow tie. They've got bags that kind of look like purses, but I'm sure that they're not. They got little hats that have numbers on them. I think this one says two and it looks like there might be a little like pluma fluff feathers on it. And uh, they look very serious. They do. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you did, you did really good. You hit on some of the important things I'm going to talk about now. So okay. Good. Okay. So let's discuss this uniform. Uh, their uniforms generally consisted of jackets that were copies of the men in their unit. Um, but oftentimes they were edited to have more feminine touches, such as like braids or lace. And mm-hmm. a lot of times it was a discarded soldier's jacket that had been upcycled and like okay. fitted to fit the women. But they, these are real soldier's jackets that our, our women were wearing. And then as you mentioned on the bottom, they, they do have on pants um, and skirts slash dresses so i mean a dress over pants it's fashion disaster in my opinion but uh yeah they look très chic i don't know uh but this was the look they the pants were there for practicality many times many times the women were often put on horseback and used Mm -hmm. to send messages between um troops because it was seen as cowardly to shoot a woman. So the enemies wouldn't shoot down a Vivandier who's on horseback. um, So they could get messages back and forth. But then the dresses and skirts were there just, I think, to remind the men that these are women. I don't know. To remind them that they're women. (laughs) Yeah. Ridiculous. Um, And then also a a note that I found about the pants, which I thought was super interesting, is that it was actually two separate sections. So from the waist to the hem of the skirt, it would be cotton, which was like breathable and easy. And then from like the the hem of the skirt to the ankle, it would be like the the wool that matched the soldier's pants. so that it appeared that they were wearing the same outfit as the men, but really under that dress, they were all in for the comfort and breathability. <laughs> Gotta let that hooch breathe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and so this uniform was considered bold, 
but also feminized uh, so that enemies wouldn't mistake them as soldiers. Um, But it did highlight that they were considered a part of their regiments by the Mm -hmm. soldiers in history and by like the government, they were not considered soldiers, but the troops often considered them one of the team. Uh, And it was also noted that like, they marched in parades and things with their regiments. So they would match when they wore the same jacket and pants because they were, they were members of the units. I don't know. They were, I just, I guess I want to make a point. They weren't hidden from society. It's not like they were like hidden members. Uh, And so I don't understand why we don't celebrate or know more about them, but it is what it is. Okay. On top of all of that, the most important piece of the outfit you mentioned, uh, which is considered the Vivandier's trademark, is called the tonole. Um, Or when I looked up the pronunciation, all the English versions were the tonlet. But the. (laughs) Tonlet. Sounds like something someone in the West would say the (laughs) tonlet. But the French pronunciation is like tonole. Um, yeah. And basically it is a small barrel suspended from a soldier strap. Uh, and I think you said it looked like a purse. It's actually like a small keg, if you will. It was used to okay. disperse alcohol. Uh, oh, they, oh wait. See- when I zoom in, I feel like I can see there's almost like a little tap on it, right? Yeah, there is. Oh, yeah. It does look like a little keg. (laughs) So this was on a strap, and they carried it on their person at all times. And this was so that they could very quickly provide troops with a drink, um, whether it was to perk them up if they were tired. Maybe Mm -hmm. it was to help them go to sleep if they couldn't sleep. But often it was to give a soldier a shot, um, to decrease pain because of an injury or something yeah. um, in the middle of like a battlefield. So mm-hmm. if they were about to go like under some very quick medical procedure, it'd be like, here's some brandy, which was the liquor of choice in most of the tonalays at the time. That uh, was okay. brandy. Um, and this is like the iconic accessory of the, the Vendiers. Uh, and that's what they are most famously known for is providing liquor or mostly brandy, sometimes wine to the soldiers as they were fighting, which just, okay. I love, I love that for them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and this imagery of a woman pouring drinks for soldiers goes on to be used by lots of companies and in lots of like patriotic propaganda and advertisements, uh, which I think there is some pictures in the email that I sent as well. Um, the one that's colorized. Yeah. You know, we see her kind of pouring that drink for those soldiers uh, as With well. With a little barrel. As, yeah. And then if you go down to the bottom, there's another colorized photo of like a woman pouring a drink uh, mm-hmm. for soldiers. And I'm going to come back to these pictures later, but um, 
and like I'm going to point out something else about those two colorized photos in particular, but the prevalence there is that they're giving the soldiers alcohol. Yeah. Okay. Back to the story. Okay. So these women are not, however, just battlefield bartenders. <laughs> Vivandiers were key to maintaining a successful army they helped manage supplies, they provided logistical support while at war, and they ensured the livelihood of French soldiers. And many reports say that these women often served as like the first line of medical help, carrying small medical resources and acting as like the first field nurse that a soldier might encounter. Um, mm. where they could wrap up injuries before a soldier could get to like a proper medical tent on a, a, a camp if they were injured during a fight. Mm-hmm. And the Vandiers were not sanctioned to do any fighting, but there are reports of women who did pick up and bear arms if it was needed in time of a battle. They were in a freaking battle. Yeah. I can imagine that yeah. sometimes they would need to like pick up a gun. Yeah. So these women served as prominent members of the French army from the early 1700s all the way up until World War I. Okay. And while Vivandiers got their start in France, the practice was widely imitated and versions of a Vivandier would appear in armies across the world, including here in America. We had women serve on both sides of the Civil War. Uh, women served in armies for Spain, Belgium, Italy, Germany, Switzerland, and in many armies across South America as well, playing these similar, although slightly different roles, depending on the country. However, their tales are absent from most records or official narratives. So we learned about war through all of high school and middle school and parts of college, and they're not talked about. Nope. Which blows my mind. Uh, for example, in the American Civil War, Vivandiers served on both the Union and the Confederate side, but they were called Daughters of the Regiment, not Vivandiers, because that is a mm-hmm. French term. Right. And on the battlefield, they were often brave soldiers charging the front line shoulder to shoulder with their male comrades and earning no credit. Um, It's nearly impossible to find stories from either the North or the South recognizing women. I was able to find there are a few names that come up, but it's like basically just their name and the regime, like Mm -hmm. the regiment they served with. There's like no other information about them. So in popular culture today, the picture of, of Vivandier has been as, I put it in quotes, sexed up. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, you know, the skirts are a little tighter. The liquor is a bit more heavy handed and the faces are drawn are very like doll like and beautiful. And you can see that in the two colorized pictures that I sent to you that will also post on social media. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they have like very cinched waists, waists, waist, (laughs) cinched waist. Um, like in this first picture, you can't even tell she's wearing pants. I mean, in the second one you can, but 
Yeah, their hair is like, yeah, their hair is flawless. I think they're wearing jewelry. Like this girl looks like she's wearing earrings. Like, yeah. Not realistic. And if we're honest, I mean, these women were walking miles with the men. They were living in tents. They were fighting in war. And the great majority of them were going to be every bit as dirty and weather beaten as the men they were fighting next to. So mm-hmm. these portrayals are very like Hollywoodized, uh, for lack of yeah. a better term. And I just kind of wish they Hollywood. got the credit for being like tough and doing, you know, hard work. Yeah, totally. They deserve it. They were in freaking battles without any training. I know. Um, And so despite a lack of distinction in military history and a lack of like imagery for us to really explore, because there's not that many images of them, they are good reminders of how women have kind of always made a place for themselves, even if history doesn't recognize it. And yeah. You know, their legacy goes on in small bits. Uh, there was a famous opera put on about Vivandiers and mm-hmm. you know, their part in the war. And then also, and I thought you would appreciate this, I found it. Hold on, I gotta find where I put it now. There's a quote in Little Women. Ooh! Hold on, where did I, did I, I might have erased. No, there it is. Okay. I was like, I didn't erase it. I kept it. Uh, so in Little Women, there is a part where Joe says she wishes, the exact quote is, don't I wish I could go as a drummer of Yvonne, what's it name? Or a nurse? I So I could be near him and help him. Uh, like she doesn't say Vivandier. She just says Viva. But, like, yeah, it's alluded to. That's what she means. And that's what she wants yeah. to, like, join the army. Um, to like She just didn't go. know how to pronounce French terms like us. <laughs> so uh, there are mentions of it in history. They're just few and far between. But, yeah. like, I don't know. If I'm going to serve in war uh, with a soldier, I want one that's got the wine and snacks. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here's a little pick-me-up, a little snack, a little drink. Yeah. And you do have pictures here of, like, actual women. The right? Bondiers, yes. Yeah. Look at this lady with her gun posing yeah. for the camera. Yeah, and like I said, their uniforms were all slightly different. We can see some that are yeah. more traditional with the full skirt, and then some where it's more just balloon-like pants. Um, mm-hmm. but I mean, they all have their little tonelets. Yeah. I see those, <laughs> those little barrels. That's so, it, it just, this whole season, it's boggled my mind about how many stories have been like overlooked in history. Yeah. You know, I know it's a very funny, I was actually listening to, a podcast the other day and at the end they were talking about it's 
I don't want to call them out because I don't feel offended. I'm going to call them out. So it, I was listening to hashtag history. <laughs> who we love. Who we love. Uh, and at the end of one of their episodes, they were talking about how great a job another podcast we love, Beyond Reproach, does at researching their cocktail history. Like what uh-huh. both of those podcasts do, like weekly cocktails. Which, ironically enough, we don't. But no. (laughs) So I think it was Leah was like, I don't know how Tux from Beyond Reproach finds so much cocktail history. It's so hard to find good history about alcohol. And I sat there in my car going, that's what our entire podcast is about. What does she mean she doesn't know? where to find stories about alcohol (laughs) because I was like, well, that's what Vanessa and I do every week is find stories about alcohol. And I guess it just goes to prove that point that like those stories exist, but why don't we know them? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I have to do like serious digging to find stories and it shouldn't be that way. I know, but I, but there's just so many good stories out there. There's so many. They exist. We just need to find them. Yes. And tell them to the world. Speaking of what I found <laughs> or where I found my sources this week, um, I used <laughs> two sources uh, this week. Uh, I found a great article written by Rupert Miller on the drinksbusiness.com called Wine and Warfare Part 7, The Vivandiers. And then um, my newest favorite website. I knew it. I knew you were going to say it. <laughs> um, messy, messy, chic. Uh, they had an article called The Women Warriors Who Served Wine on the Battlefield. And that was written by Carrie Elgin. Or Elgin. Um, I'm telling you, Vanessa, this website is like my new favorite. I get a daily email from them. And it's like 13 things I found on the internet today. And I like can't wait to open it every day. It's so excited. <laughs> but to be honest, that's why so many of my stories have like a French twist is because they're located in France. Oh, okay. And why there's, that there's makes sense. a lot of French history. But that's great because I feel like there's so much that we just don't know about other parts of the world. So I'm glad that I found yeah. them. I, I almost told a different story for this episode that was prohibition based. And I was like, we've talked about American prohibition so much. I have to do something else. So it is nice to like find stories from other countries because so many of the American drinking stories have to do with prohibition. Yeah. Yeah. I think my story next week is prohibition. If I do. Oh no, mine too. <laughs> That's our theme then. <laughs> oh man. Uh, well, here's to the Vivandiers and the Saloon Girls and being overlooked in history. We got you. We're telling your stories. Yes. We're here for you. I really enjoyed both of those stories this week. Definitely. And don't forget that if you want to see pictures, because we will be posting pictures to follow us on social media. Right. We're on Instagram and Twitter at a tap on the wrist. And if you know any interesting stories about women in alcohol history or 
any interesting alcohol stories at all because we are going to go on break soon for a season, you know, at the end of season three with the summer. And so we'll be plotting future seasons. And so any alcohol stories you know about could be helpful to us. Yeah. And you can email us at tapontheristpodcast at gmail.com. All right, now we are getting to the part in the episode where we highlight a woman in alcohol, and this week we are highlighting a canned wine. Yes, we are talking about Bev. Uh huh. B E V, or as I spelled to Laura earlier, <laughs> B E V. <laughs> she forgot the alphabet. And so Bev is a canned wine company that's based out of L.A. And it is exactly what you expect it to be. It's canned wine, but it's more modern. And they have a lot of slogans like made by chicks and break the glass. Yes. So it totally fits like our demographic. Like, if you look at their social media, I'm like, yes. Oh, yes. Laura. To op- buy them all. <laughs> Laura opened it and immediately was like, I'm following them. <laughs> <laughs> but they also, their thing is that there is zero sugar wine. So it's zero sugar, three carbs, 100 calories per serving, which is so it's healthy wine. <laughs> <laughs> you can drink all the wine you want. Yes. And it has... A bit of a story behind it, actually. Um, the founder of the company is Alix Peabody. And in 2015, at only 24 years old, she was suddenly an organ failure, which is, I'm sure, terrifying to go through, especially so young. Uh, and she sadly lost her ovaries and the ability to naturally have children. So as her health stabilized, she decided she wanted to freeze her eggs. And if you are not a woman or you've never looked into it, that's very expensive to do. And, like, insurances tend to not cover that because it's such a huge expense. So what she did was she started to have parties that were aimed at women that wanted a safe space to, like, just unwind without, I'm guessing, being hit on by men. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes (laughs) we just want to drink. Yeah. (laughs) So she started these parties and like ticketed, you know, ticketed them and she eventually did earn enough money to cover her bills. But it kind of made her think that she was like onto something with, you know, doing something for women. And so she decided to start this wine company and in 2017 she started making her own wine in brightly colored cans. Uh, And that was the start of Bev. And I do want to say they are, I think she now has a distribution deal with E&J Gallo. And that was kind of to expand her business and to get it into places like Target uh, and Safeway and Albertsons, which is apparently a very popular grocery store that I didn't know about. Because <laughs> I was like, what is Albertsons? I wouldn't say it's popular. <laughs> I just said it's large. Like, it is a big grocery store chain. The way she said it when she was reading it to me was like she had never heard that word before. And I grew up in Florida where Albertsons are in, like, every town. So I was like, why'd you say it so weird? Because <laughs> it seemed like a weird store to throw in Target and Safeway. And apparently it wasn't. <laughs> uh, I also want to highlight that Bev's entire sales team is made up of women. Yes. Which is 
very rare for the alcohol industry. Alik says that she wants to keep women as sales reps because it's important to have them fight at every stage to get Bev on the shelf. Yes. And we actually got a lot of this information. There's a really awesome article about her in Forbes called Made by Chicks. Startup goes all out in the market for canned wine. So check that out if you want more information on Bev. But I do want to highlight some of their flavors. So... You can order from their website, and it says that two-day shipping is always on them. So you don't have to worry about paying for shipping. You can just order from them or go to, you know, any of these stores that it's available. And, of course, I believe they have something on their site where you could look up what stores it's available in. Right. But they have Bev Rosé, Bev Blanc, which is a Sauvignon Blanc, uh, Bev Bev Grease, which which is a Pinot Grigio, so Gris. Uh, they have Bev Noir, which is like a red wine. It looks like it has pomegranate flavoring and blackberry because that's the fruits they show around it. The Bev Noir is 12.9 ABV, which seems very high for like a canned wine, and I'm here for it. The rest are about 11 to 11.9, so get a nice little buzz from them. Yeah. And they're, I mean, their marketing is on brand. It's all very bright colors. The cans are bright colors. It's just very feminine. It's very pro-women. Their entire messaging is pro-women and pro-inclusive, you know, to minorities and, like, making sure that people who are often not heard are heard. Yeah. So I just love their entire message. Their Instagram, if you want to follow them, is uh, drinkbev. Again, that's (laughs) B-E-V. Uh, yeah, definitely. Their website is also drinkbev.com if you want to check it out. Uh, right at the top, I see it says, drinking culture is fucked, but with a bunch of symbols instead of the actual word. Right. That's why together we're creating a culture that inspires equality, embodies inclusive fun, and powers communities for the better, which is amazing. I love that. I love that as well. I also love the hilarious memes they have on their Instagram, like this one that says, Fully vaccinated people no longer need to pretend they like White Claw. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, just that White Claw. So, um, if you are a wine drinker, or maybe you're like me and wine isn't your go-to, I like, just the branding alone makes me want to support this company and, and follow them, and maybe I'll find a wine I love. Yeah. Definitely. I actually love canned wine, so I'm excited to try this one. Yes. All right. Everyone should go and drink Bev. Drink Bev. Cheers. Cheers.